recording. Great, we're ready to go. So uh, let me change my view to the speaker view so we get that organized. And I will start at this point. So welcome, first of all, to everyone. I am delighted to see everybody here today. My name is Karine Mogg. I am the director of the Meter Center. And it's my great pleasure to welcome you to the second of our webinars for 2021. And today it's my great pleasure to welcome three colleagues um, with whom I've had a long association, uh, three women scholars of the Reformation, uh, all of whom are, are well known to us, but I'll still introduce them one at a time. And then I'll just lay out for you what we will be doing in terms of the program. So let me start by doing some introductions. So our first uh, presenter is uh, Professor Susan Carrant Nunn. She is the Director Emerita of the Division for Late Medieval and Reformation Studies at the University of Arizona. She took up that position as director in 2001, though she had joined the uh, division already in 1999. And she previously served as professor of history at Portland State University. She is a highly regarded scholar of Lutheran Germany, including several monographs. Uh, most recently in 2017, The Personal Luther, Essays on the Reformer from a Cultural Historical Perspective. Uh, she also served as co-editor, North American co-editor for uh, the Archive for Reformation History from 1998 to 2010, along with Anne Jacobson Schrute. Uh, after Susan speaks, we will then be hearing from two other colleagues. Uh, first of all, from Beth Plummer. Um, Beth Plummer serves as the Susan Carrant Nunn Professor of Reformation and Early Modern History in the Division of Late Medieval and Reformation Studies at the University of Arizona. She took up the position in 2017 after 15 years as faculty at Western Kentucky University. Um, she is the author of Clerical Marriage and the Process of Reform in the Early German Reformation. Um, and she is the editor of several volumes including the one that we're really going to be talking about today, which is the Festschrift that she and Victoria published for, um, for um, the, uh, to honor Susan. And it is called Cultural Shifts and Ritual Transformations in Reformation Europe, uh, published by Brill in 2020. And then our third presenter is Victoria Christman, professor of history at Luther College in Iowa. Uh, she received her PhD in early modern history from the University of Arizona in 2005. Her publications include Pragmatic Toleration in the Politics of Religious Heterodoxy in 16th Century Antwerp, published in 2015, and as well as the co-edited co volume to honor Susan Carrant Nunn, she also co-edited a volume with Beth Plummer called Topographies of Tolerance and Intolerance, published by Brill in 2018. And that was based on an, a National Endowment for the Humanities summer seminar that we had held at the Meter Center in 2013. So there's a, a long sort of networking connections between the University of Arizona, the, um, the, 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 the Division for, of Late Medieval and Reformation Studies, and the Meter Center, and these three presenters. And we are so, so pleased to be able to welcome them today. So I will turn things over right now to Susan for her remarks and her uh, communications to us. Karin, <clears throat> thank you so very much.
Um, I want, first of all, to pay tribute to you for the remarkable services that you have rendered to Reformation studies over years and years through, uh, you've used your imagination, you have persisted and you have applied for funds and you have gotten some of them and put on seminars. And any, it's just amazing to me to consider all that you have done quite apart from honoring me in this way, which I, uh, I thank you most sincerely for. Um, and of course, um, that I should receive not one, but two festschrifts, the editors of which are uh, all three in attendance here, I can barely find words for, so I'm not going to try. I'm going to get on with my comments. Um, and I need, I'm going to have to look down at this. One of the problems uh, of um, doing a Zoom paper is that I don't have a lectern here, so I'm going to have to look away from you and bury my nose in my notes. <laughs> when Karin told me that she wanted to organize this webinar and asked me if I would be the opening speaker, I wondered what I could possibly talk about. I decided that if the underlying subject of our meeting was my career in Victoria's and Beth's festschrift, I wanted to claim the privilege of old age and look back at just some of the sources of inspiration that have informed my work, the existence of which well before I took up the pen keeps me from having been a true innovator. By the way, Charles Zika has recently written a riveting essay on the influences and the scholars that bore upon him in his development, and I recommend that. Some of the persons and historiographic currents that influenced him helped shape me as well, and some of the others of you in attendance today, some of the older ones. <clears throat> Intellectual discussion has always been intertwined, or as I'm saying today, interknitted. Uh, I say that interknitted as a woman, but men knit too sometimes. And I'm thinking of Mary Wiesner Hanks knitting at our meetings. And I'm thinking of Tutti Oberman, whom I met uh, in, at a Luther uh, uh, anniversary in 1983 in Erfurt, and she was sitting there knitting and knitting because she suffered from arthritis. This intellectual discussion posits a giant you and we out there made up of past and present writers, most of whom we could never know except through the published word, all our scholarship occurs within a context of reading, hearing, considering, researching, reacting, interpreting, asserting. It's a collective enterprise. It does not take shape within an ideational vacuum. The kind of people who have contributed to this feshrift are colleagues from whose work and whose commentary I have derived assistance in analyzing my own findings. When I was in graduate school, the expectation predominated that we should gather and feature new facts, quote unquote. This was how we should make that, quote, contribution to knowledge, unquote, on which the success of our performance was to be judged. I went off to East Germany in the late 1960s to fulfill this duty, but new impulses were already abroad in the world impinging on my awareness.
With the social revolutions in the Western world in the late 60s, social history laid claim to our profession. The quest of the Annal School for Histoire Totale captured the North American imagination. The hotel ballroom in Toronto at which Emmanuel Leroy Ladurie spoke at the meetings of the American Historical Association in 1967 was packed beyond capacity. And if I may say so, the atmosphere was thick with smoke because everybody smoked and was allowed to at that time. Especially we younger scholars began to search for historical people who had been excluded from the accounts of many established historians, altogether referred to as subalterns. This category included any low status and marginalized group, including women of many standings, rural clergy, servants, laborers and miners, and even executioners. In the archives where I was reading on a range of other topics, I began to record exceptional anecdotes related to females. It was easy and genuinely appealing to me to begin to include any non-prestigious sector of early modern society in my work. In the two generations since Laura Ladurie and Fernand Brodel were all the rage, we who were and are attracted to social history have produced mountains of previously overlooked material on a vast range of non-elite people. This task will go on into the indefinite future and our findings do and will underpin all our interpretive speculations. I agree with Mary Wiesner Hanks that we must never think that we have searched out enough information about women, and I would add other people too. Social history in the literal sense still flourishes. But at the same moment that we heard the call of Laura Lerie and others, and partly because the founders of the Annal were themselves open to influences from such disciplines as anthropology, philosophy, and sociology, an altered approach to the facts we were amassing entered the social historian's equation, cultural and interdisciplinary analysis. There was no sudden cultural turn, except perhaps within the psyche of the individual practitioner, but rather a gradual spreading interest in, say, ethnographic or semiotic or cognitive perspectives and their applications to the past. Such as these were the other disciplines that the emerging interdisciplinarians among us began to contemplate, and as they ultimately thought, fruitfully. But before I get into my own experience, let me quickly interject that researchers in those areas of history on which there was already sparse documentation, such as ancient history, medieval history, and women's history, to name the three that affected me, had always had to piece together sources of very different provenance. Of necessity, they were all, always interdisciplinary without using that label, and their models too were close at hand. 
In August 1977, at the Flagstaff, Arizona meetings of the Pacific Coast Branch of the American Histor Historical Association, that methodological pathbreaker, Natalie Zeman Davis, who had entertained Le Roi La Durie at the AHA in 1967, suggested in commenting on a paper I had given that I consult the theories of Victor Turner as an aid to understanding Saxon folk culture better. Culture is, by the way, quite a totalizing concept, as Laurent Ladurie had long since insisted in his 1966 Paysans de Languedoc. It defies easy encapsulation, for it includes a society's way of regarding the cosmos, phenomena both seen and unseen, both ethereal and concrete, and of defining human relations. Anthropologists strongly implied that their ways of looking were applicable not to our present society, in other words, to ourselves, but rather to the other and the primitive. Thus, whatever Zeman Davis's inclination was, some people must have thought that there was a suspicious condescension involved in the scholars viewing her or his own antecedents through such a lens. At any rate, it took me several years to alter my accepted way of looking. I wrote on the title page of David Warren Sabian's Power in the Blood, historian as writer of fiction. That was my comment. I have told David this. We had a laugh about it. My fellow Reformation historians, in any case, were not rushing into the Annal or any other experimental interpretive camp. Stephen Osmond was condemning of early efforts. He declared, the aim of writing or reading about early modern Europe is not to prove or disprove the theories of some 19th century psychologist or 20th century anthropologist. It is rather to obtain an understanding of what it meant to be a person in that age. And Brad Gregory has taken a similar stand more recently. The essays of Robert W. Scribner, an Australian working at Portsmouth Polytechnic University and then the University of London, continually drew my attention. I met him at a conference in London in 1978. His positive view of my published dissertation in 1979, after it had been decisively rejected for publication by leading American men in Reformation history, emboldened me to seek his mentorship. He lent it gladly, as indeed he involved himself in guiding and sponsoring a large number of young scholars from numerous countries. He, he and I were about the same age, so in fact, he was young too. Bob was well into tapping anthropological and other interdisciplinary perspectives, and early on showed that applying those to Reformation contexts could yield unprecedented and useful insights into the dynamics of early modern religion in the concrete community and aggregate of real people. He seemingly ignored the critiques and early shunning of church historians explicitly, especially in Germany, and built up a cadre of like-minded historians, including the founders of the journal Social History in 1976. What's more, he showed no bias against the full participation of women in the profession. 
At the University of London, he was the doctor father of, for example, Lindahl Roper. Scribner gave me the courage to approach the ritual of churching from an ethnographic point of view. He felt that I could have been more creative in my treatment of Zwickau, and he literally commissioned my next book, The Reformation of Ritual, which he read shortly before his death. He is alleged to have said, perhaps to Jim Tracy, for he was reading it in Minneapolis, this is much better than I thought it would be. The subject of churching formed one chapter. In this manner and under the simultaneous stimulus of other colleagues who were more advanced in their experimentation with other disciplines, I turned a corner and went in the direction of what we call today cultural history. I was not a pioneer. I followed others who were. I did not follow figures who became normative in the, on the German scene. In West Germany, it was obligatory, it seemed to me, to mention Max Weber, a sociologist. And in East Germany, of course, one had to pay tribute always to Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels and even to Vladimir Lenin. <clears throat> on our linguistic and historiographic side, a few people such as Natalie Davis and Bob Scribner changed the face of Reformation studies by opening it to the interdisciplinary currents that had already affected historiography in general. They provided models and patrons for colleagues well beyond the ranks of their own graduate students. They spent much time in archives and libraries in their respective arenas. They demonstrated too that the best historians will exercise imagination in devising their research projects, selecting their sources, framing their arguments, and interpreting the lives of early modern people. I do want to emphasize how important imagination is. Bob Scribner, as an Aussie, was admitted to East Germany a year before I, an early American, was. He reputedly lived in a van and went from archive to archive as he investigated the Reformation in Erfurt. Davis and Scribner have demonstrated that both gathering and imagining are crucial to the scholarly world that all of us now inhabit. We notice dimensions of the past, and based on our findings, we can speculate creatively on its rationale. I simply followed their precedents. One should not anticipate winning the admiration of scholars who are fully anthropologists, psychologists, or social anthropologists. I allowed a member of Portland State's anthropology department to read my essay on the churching of women, and she was, I think, under a veneer of politeness, horrified. She said this would not be acceptable among anthropologists. Does that mean that historians err out of hand when they borrow from the perspectives of other disciplines? I think not. I think we have to bear in mind that our discursive community is made up of specialists in the reconstruction of the early modern European past. We acquire ideas from those who stand within other humanities, social sciences, and art history, but we do not imitate the details of their manner, their manners of proceeding. Cultural as a culture, as I already said, is a quite a totalizing concept. It provides an organizing principle for past societies. It refers to the cosmic understanding of a people. 
In the late medieval European environment, that cosmos was envisioned as apart from and above the level of humanity, but it was also seen to exist among and include human beings. Our task as historians of the reformations was not only to grasp the prelates definitions of the heavenly spheres and right theology, but also the common faithful's conceptions of Christians interrelated and properly ordered lives. Pathbreaking writers during the last generation have pointed us toward newer directions in Reformation-related research that show the promise of astonishing new insights into our small subfield. These colleagues have passed me by. I've selected just a few examples here. A notable object of research is currently the experience of religion by the worshiper, how the ordinary attendee at divine services might have perceived the ecclesiastical environment and the ritual processes. Scholars such as Matthew Milner, Philip Hahn, and Jacob Baum have delved into the use of the senses in Protestant settings. The reformed body, including its postures, begins to be of interest, and Alec Ryrie has made us focus on it in the English context. I regret very much that Thomas Lentus's pioneering dissertation, Gebetbuch und Geberde, was never published. It's, it's brilliant. Another monument to imaginative thinking is Alexandra Walsham's treatment of the Protestant perception of, and even the construction of the landscape in England through the post-Reformation early modern period in her Reformation of the Landscape. Walsham's approach could produce the excavation of mountainous material if applied to the German-speaking regions. And what about the personalities of reformers and rulers, those who, would, who adapted the who shaped the emerging non-Catholic religious topography? What perhaps even today do we owe to their unique temperaments, their experiences, their preferences? We could probably agree, you and I, that Martin Luther and John Calvin, to name but two, were distinctive in taste and character. Did they imprint their personal features on the soft clay of weakening Catholic allegiance? Years ago, when I was reading in the Evangelisches Lutherisches Kirchenarchiv in Stuttgart, I was surprised to notice the ambiguity in common Christians' religious identities and practices in response to their altering geographic locations and their practical needs. I described my findings in Confessional Ambiguity Along Borders, an essay that I published. Since that time, however, colleagues such as David Lubke, uh, working on Westphalian parishes, and Marjorie Elizabeth Plummer, who's here among us, in regard to interfaith convents throughout Protestant Germany, have shown that syncretism and hybridity were prominent features of the Reformation from its beginning in areas where faiths existed in close proximity. Continuing attention to the reciprocal influences among the faiths will, I predict, yield yet deeper understanding of religious dynamics in this period. 
a global perspective on the Reformation is developing apace, partly at the instigation of Mary Wiesner Hanks. In, in the more recent parts of her expansive opus, she repeats that we shall have a better prospect on European religion if we place it within the context of contemporaneous trends outside its boundaries. Europeans were in regular and growing touch with the out the so-called outside, both European divines and lay devout, and not just members of Catholic orders, took the great commission of Matthew 28 very seriously indeed, as they engaged in every great in ever greater contact with the extra European world. They not only bore their faiths with them, but intended to fulfill the scriptural adjuration. Women, too, were increasingly participating in these activities. Wiesner Hanks observes that work on especially Protestant women's roles has only begun. As I peer into what are to me the precious pages of this festschrift, I see multiple examples of imaginative, innovative contributions to Reformation research. I would not want to oversimplify and regard each author as a direct descendant of Davis and Scribner. Each contributor has trodden a unique path to his and her current intellectual location. It may be that these featured pioneers simply loosened the soil within which a broad diversity of seeds could, could flourish. No longer today would my dissertation be rejected out of hand as bound to attract only acerbic reviews because it was a social historical and non-confessional account. That is what the editor said. It would attract only acerbic reviews. The Feshrift's essays subjects are either new or newly framed. In drafting these remarks, I made up a list of the authors and what basically in the larger opus of the senior colleagues or in just these Festschrift essays by more junior ones would not have been understood or well received 50 years ago. I don't have time to read this list to you. I will mention only that Victoria's work on Jewish identity in the Low Countries illuminated me in her essay for this festschrift about Queen Regent of the Netherlands, Mary of Hungary. I detect her interest in misogyny and stereotype as historical impulses. Beth Plummer writes here about growing old in German convents. Who among our predecessors attended to the experience of women's or even men's aging? But I do think that each of the 17 kind contributors reflects the turning of the historiographic soil that I have discussed above. In interaction with some more senior and some contemporaneous researchers, each has sown mutational seeds in a more nurturing environment. The results have themselves generated more thought and more creative interaction. This dynamic is what I am relating to knitting. Thank you. Thank you so much, Susan. That was wonderful. 
Um, what we're going to do at this point is we're going to pass the word on to Beth and Victoria. And then after that, we'll have some time for sort of questions and discussions among the three of you. And maybe I'll intersperse a question or two if there are any. And then those who are attending, you can ask questions if you want by posting them on the chat. And that will be the easiest way to do it. You can post your questions and I'll moderate the questions when we get to that point. But for now, I will pass it on to Beth. Hi, thank you. Um, and thank you, Susan. <laughs> that was a wonderful uh, reflection. Uh, but I think you decentered yourself from it, uh, which I think is, uh, is unfortunate. Um, in putting together this book, it was Susan who loosened that soil for us in so many ways. Uh, and I think individually and uh, collectively in terms of scholarship, in terms of making it possible for us to do the kind of work that we do uh, now, uh, which was not possible uh, to have done even 20 years ago, uh, sometimes even 10 years ago for some things. When we started to put this book together, um, it, it didn't start out exactly as a book. It started out as a series of conversations uh, as one tends to have, as one notices that perhaps a colleague that one has admired for a long time might be about to retire. Um, and so the inquiries start, the little whispering starts. Um, I, I now having been through a couple of festschrifts, I wonder when somebody might notice that a festschrift might be on the horizon, uh, when one's uh, former graduate students and colleagues start having dinners and lunches and, and secretive conversations when they look up at you and say, oh, oh, no, we're not talking about anything. Yeah, sure, join us um, <laughs> at this kind of scary uh, moment. For us, this conversation started somewhere around 2014. Uh, Victoria and I were trying to figure out exactly when we started having this conversation. Um, but it did start with a conversation with Victoria, with Amy Burnett, uh, with James Blakely, with Uta Lotz-Hoyman, uh, with myself. Uh, there were other people that were always sort of involved in it, uh, where we basically said, yeah, we really should start planning this at some point. Uh, we didn't know when, but you know, at some point we're go going to want to talk about a festschrift. Um, but it was actually after that conversation, uh, Victoria and I, and I can't even remember, we were trying to figure this out. We were somewhere and Anne Shida came up right behind us and said, yes, you should do that. So apparently she had noticed we had been having this conversation. Uh, and so uh, a year later, uh, Amy uh, Burnett sent a very long note to, uh, to me and Uta, um, and then eventually we included Victoria in this, that it was really time to get serious about this uh, and start planning some sessions uh, to do this. Uh, which she followed up in 2017 saying, yeah, now really it's time to start doing that. So uh, Victoria and uh, Amy put together a series of sessions and we got together with the people who were working on the festival for Mary Wiesner uh, Hanks. Uh, it became a giant uh, series of sessions uh, all involved with uh, festivals, which only some people knew how many festivals were involved and that there were, but I don't think either Susan or Mary knew that this was a potential uh, possibility. Ours wasn't quite yet a festivals, 
at that particular moment. Uh, we had uh, put the panels together, or Victoria and Amy had, uh, and we sat through them and Victoria and I looked at each other uh, and we were in the middle of doing a edited volume and we were just about wrapping it up and we thought, you know what, we'll just keep going. We'll just work on another <laughs> one right after this. Uh, we should be able to get this one together uh, or this one we're doing now done uh, right as the articles were coming in for the next one. So it seemed like a very good idea at that particular moment. Although in retrospect, we had not really considered this. this was 2017 and what we were about to do next might have really not been the wisest thing to do. Um, and it could have gone very, very wrong, but it is a credit to Susan Carrot Nunn that it didn't because when we sent out a bunch of notes after the 16th century saying, look, we think this really could come together for some, with something. Are you all willing to send us uh, your paper and write an article? And almost to a person, uh, people said yes. Uh, and so we were quite surprised, uh, pleasantly surprised at the enthusiastic reaction to it. Uh, but it did mean that we faced a kind of issue because we had not set up everything as a, as a cohesive book. Uh, we had set it up as uh, a series of panels, and we left everybody essentially to their own devices, which I think actually is in, in many ways the best thing you can do with the fast shift, uh, because you let people figure out where they want to talk uh, with the scholar that they are honoring. And so we waited, uh, got the other book done, and got the articles back. And then, then the fun started because it is all of these issues that uh, Susan has brought up that, that became absolutely true is that these articles were so rich, they were so interesting and they were so diverse and they had to go into some kind of order. Uh, in the first round or maybe even the second round, uh, I counted we had at least six table of contents. Uh, I think that's only uh, part of it. Those are the ones that we actually saved. I, we had many conversations of how to order the articles and how to frame them uh, and how to put the whole thing together. And part of it was trying to figure out ways into this. What were the trends uh, that were in Susan Carrot Nunn's work, but what were the trends that were also in contemporary scholarship that made some sense? Uh, and so as we went through, we, we essentially came up with both the title, of, which we have to thank Mary Wiesner for, because uh, she told us our original trouble, uh, title was gonna get us in tr trouble. <laughs> and I, I won't tell you what it was, but uh, she was right. And we eventually came up with this one, which fit very much what it was, uh, cultural shifts and ritual transformations. Uh, but we also, I don't know, at some point, uh, I, I had uh, Susan's CV uh, on my desk and I thought, why don't we try and kind of match it to the, the four books that uh, you have written and worked on that and it did work out. Uh, particularly by the late, late entry of um, David Whitford. Uh, he wrote to us in 2018 with a really good idea that we should write a fest shift. 
And we said, we are. <laughs> and he says, I want in. <laughs> Not that I was intending to get this. Um, and so with his essay, we were able to start to build the, uh, the text of the book. Uh, and so my job in this is to talk about the first two sections a little bit, very briefly. Um, and then I'll turn it over to Victoria. Um, but in trying to put together the first section, which we used Luther's pastors as a kind of beginning uh, to think about that. It's very interesting to think of that book as, as an editor rejecting, because personally, that's the book that gave me all sorts of ideas that I carried all over uh, the place when I was doing research, uh, both for my dissertation, uh, but also uh, specifically for my book, Priests, Worst, Pastors, Wives, because I was absolutely fascinated by this idea of what was the life of pastors like? And in essence, what the question that most, uh, what all the four of the authors are looking at is what is the impact of the Reformation on a variety of different uh, forms? So while we have a kind of, uh, geographic focus and a focus um, that on the similarities of being interested in Martin Luther. All four works deal with Martin Luther in some form or another. They are very, very different books. Um, and what I also found interesting was that they are shaped by Luther's uh, pastors, but also the personal Luther. And so all of the books sort of take that arc and come from the first book uh, that uh, Susan wrote to the one she has most recently written, uh, The Personal Luther, and tried to think about this. And so we have uh, whore brides, genuflecting horses, erased and missing women, and aging nuns, uh, all of which come into focus to understand the cultural shifts that were experienced in both a abstract way, but also a very, very concrete way uh, within Luther's writings and within the dialogues that happen in a variety of different cultural forms outside of his writings. Um, Victoria and I, when we were talking about this, we were trying to say what we found most fascinating. The thing that was most fascinating to me of all the books that I've edited, this was the one that had the most pictures. <laughs> of any book. Uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, uh, there are a lot of pictures in this book. And uh, to Brill's credit, they didn't even blink. Not only didn't they blink, they gave us color pictures as well to do this. And it was fascinating to me that uh, that said something about the, the changes that are happening in terms of what is cultural uh, involved in it as well. So the other thing which, uh, 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 Susan Carrington mentioned was the interdisciplinarity uh, that we have theologians, we have art historians, we have literary scholars, uh, we have all sorts of different uh, people coming from different scholarly um, perspectives, but who are, are talking about the same kind of issues uh, in coming up with sort of fascinating ways of bringing those things together, as is seen in this essay, in this section. The other fascinating thing was when I, uh, this morning I pulled the book up and I did a book search in it because I wanted to see uh, who cited uh, which work from Susan. 
And I realized that nine of the 17 essays uh, talk about uh, the reformation of ritual. Um, another half talk about the reformation of feeling and they come through all of the different essays. And so there isn't just a single perspective of in any of the books, but they, they actually take the various parts of this, which gets to how do we decide then which one goes into which section? Because that first section, we that made sense to us. We we're like, okay, they're all Saxony. They can all stay in that section. Uh, that made sense. But when we got to the second one, uh, which was really trying to talk about reformation of ritual, that was harder because we had at least 50% of the books that directly referenced reformation <laughs> of ritual. Um, so we couldn't just handpick which ones uh, worked with that. Uh, we really had to think about it uh, and think about the way that reformation uh, of rituals really talked about um, theology and practice diverging. Uh, in the reception of theological shifts and ritual shifts, how that worked when the lay people, uh, uh, the audiences for this in practice, uh, what their reactions were. When we did that, uh, the choices became much easier. And so uh, in this case, we were able to figure out that, uh, that the discussion in Amy Burnett's book about uh, the debate, the public debate uh, in print, but actually in reality over uh, the Lord's Supper and what was going on there. Uh, and uh, my pages got out of order as they always do. Um, and we also noticed that the uh, discussions on healing waters showed this kind of of dialogue going on between that that Uta Latoyman talks about, talking about uh, the way that uh, authorities, clergy, uh, and uh, practitioners had very different perspectives on what the purposes of these locations were. Uh, and finally, uh, in Kay Edwards' uh, uh, piece on the difference between saints and uh, spirits, we began to realize that this was another dialogue that was happening both in print, but also in practice. And so the discussion of sacraments had implications even beyond the sacraments themselves, as people were thinking about uh, the Lord's Supper, they were thinking about issues of confession, and they were thinking about the, the boundaries between life and death. Uh, then it became easy to pick the three for this section. And now I will turn it over to Victoria for section uh, three and four. Thanks, Beth. Um, I actually, before turning to um, the other sections of the book, I wanted to add another footnote about something that Beth mentioned about Anne Jacobson Schutter um, and her role in this book. So I worked as an editorial graduate student assistant to Susan Karanan and Anne Jacobson Schutter when they were co-editors of the Archiv für Reformationsgeschichte 20 years ago. And so they were a formidable team, as any of you who knew Anne would, can imagine. So I just wanted to add the footnote that Beth explains that Anne nudged us to get going on this book. 
but I just wanted to emphasize what a persuasive form of nudge <laughs> that was when it came from Anne. Um, and she, I went back today and looked at the email that she sent to me. And it came the day that Uta Latzhoyman, who's also here, um, emailed us to say that her Feshrif, the Susan, was about to come out. And of course, Beth and I had talked to Uta to make sure that these two could coexist and that we wouldn't be stepping on each other's feet. But, but Anne shot me a two-line email that said something to the effect of, I also got the email from Uta. It's perfectly fine that you still do the Feshrif that you and Beth are talking about. Get started. <laughs> So we got started, but I, Anne, were she here, um, would be very upset that her paper didn't make it into the book. And she passed away as we were collecting first drafts of articles. And so it was purely a timing issue. And she wanted a new paper to be part of the book. She didn't want something she had already presented elsewhere, which was a lovely gesture, but as it turns out, made it impossible to include it in the book. So instead we dedicated it to her so that she would be a presence in the project because we know that she wanted that very much. So my 10 minutes of time, which I'll try to shorten so that we have some time for questions, um, was supposed to be dedicated to these last two sections of the book, which were primarily devoted to cultural history. But when I was putting together my comments, I, by chance, did what Beth had done. Now we've edited so many things together that we are becoming one, <laughs> one thought process. Um, but what I did was I went through to see, I was thinking about how the contributors related their work to Susan's work. And I started out by reading the, the preface again, which was written by James Blakely and Robert Christman. And they describe Susan's connections as being myriad. That's the, the word that they use. And I thought that, that that's a great way to conceive of your relationships, Susan, with all of the people in this field. Um, and I thought back and realized that Beth and I did not ask people to specifically reference your influence on them as they wrote their chapters for this book. And so some of them did and some of them didn't. And so I thought it would be an interesting exercise to go back through and, and just look at how people conceived of the way that Susan's work had influenced their work. Um, and there were about four or five authors who chose not to draw that straight line, right? They didn't mention anything. But when I looked at their bibliographies, almost to a one, they included numerous footnotes of um, Susan's books and articles, which demonstrate a significant influence on their work, work, even when it's silent in the paper itself, which I thought was interesting. The remaining nine did choose to say at the beginning or end of their chapter, um, this chapter is a response to Susan's work in this field. And then they would explain what that was. And there I found the sort of usual suspects, what you kind of would expect to find. There were several authors who pointed to Susan's work in social and cultural history as having influenced them, the, her views of women or her presentations of women as actors or as objects of discussion by Reformation actors, clerical life and the various nuances thereof, lay understandings or lay lack of understandings of theology or embodiments of theology as new ways of looking at the sort of 
um, trickling th through society of the Reformation. Um, and then also individual action or ability to act, agency in various forms throughout this period. And I came to realize as I looked through all of these different connections that what Susan was uncovering in each of these cases was a description of the humanity of all of these people who were involved in the early modern period. Some of it takes the form of cultural history. We give it these labels of social history, but really it's the humanity of the, the individual people that come through in all of Susan's work. And that is a line, a parallel that I would draw between Susan's relationships with individual historians who are present in this volume and who are not, and her scholarship, that, that humanity lies at the, at the basis of all of it. And that is how you have forged for yourself such an impressive corner of this field as a mentor, as a colleague, and, and as a groundbreaker, even though you said you weren't one, I think that's not true, in, in Reformation history. And I became convinced by um, the thesis that Beth and I came up with when we arranged this book in the way that we arranged it, that Susan's scholarship has been foundational to this field in ways that 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 putting this fresh rift together enabled me to see. I'm not sure that I would have seen it so clearly had we not arranged it the way that we did and seen how many uh, scholars and how many fields of scholarship have been thoroughly influenced by the work that Susan's done. So I'll leave it at that so that we have time to take some questions from the many people who are here. Excellent, thank you so much to both of you, Victoria and Beth, that was fantastic. Um, and what I'd like to do, so those of you who are listening in, feel free to type in questions in the chat and I will go through them as we go. But if I can start out, and, and Susan, it's coming back to something you were saying earlier. Um, I wonder if you could say anything about how trends in scholarship, particularly, I mean, you've, you've had this sort of intersection point between doing research in Germany and then writing in an English language environment primarily. How do you see the trends sort of converging or diverging when it comes to German language scholarship on the Reformation today and English language scholarship on the Reformation today? I mean, it's, it, there's not like it's not monolithic on either side, but are, are trends diverging? Are they moving apart? What would you say if you had to compare those two? Yes, that would uh, take quite quite a while to, and in part I would have to be uh, untactful, and I don't want to be that in this setting in order to uh, thoroughly describe. There are differences, and in fact it finally got to the point about, what, five or six years ago, when I uh, wrote an essay for uh, something that um, Heinz Schilling was putting together. He had a fellowship at the Historisches Kolleg in Munich and invited people in. And I wrote about why English language scholarship was different from German 
Reformation scholarship. There were certain things, for instance, they could never understand. It seems to be very hard for them to understand why we have to do women's history and uh, why we have to um, include uh, ordinary people, uh, very, very humble people. I think that partly the structure in Germany of Reformation studies is still predominantly, predominantly, but not exclusively, that Reformation history is done in theology faculties. That is the, the scholars are often theologians, trained church historians with an emphasis on, on church. They are often in fact uh, ordained clergy and um, they don't have the same spontaneous interests that, that we in the English speaking world who don't have very often don't have those connections. Of course, there are many colleagues and I respect them highly and I dip into their work. I look at it regularly. I depend upon it who are in seminaries and who work on theology. Uh, but we also in the Anglophone world are drawn to ordinary people and we're expected to be, that is, we're, we're very closely related to the larger historiographic culture in, in our nation that uh, if, if you came up for tenure and you didn't have an, a more interesting, a more compelling, a more, a topic uh, for research and publication that indeed was, um, was showing the latest trends, you might be hard pressed to get that tenure or that promotion, whereas the criteria are in the theology faculties, I think we don't, they don't have tenure in the same way, but um, the attitudes are different. Nope. So we, these tensions, I don't mean to go on at such length, these tensions uh, emerge a bit, a bit, when we come together in conferences from our different contexts. But we've made our peace. I think we understand one another better today. <laughs> no, I think that's very valid. And it's, it's a really interesting thing because we are connected, you know, across borders and now especially online and so on and so forth. But it still strikes me that there are very different trends in current day scholarship in terms of how different language groups even apply yes. to this question. We have a question in the chat from Jill. Um, Jill Faleson, who asks, has the pandemic shaped how you look at your subjects of the past, especially women? That's an interesting question. <clears throat> um, uh, Beth, Victoria, or Susan, any of you want to look at that? I know that um, I've been working on an abbess and noticed that she was actually uh, coming up with various recipes to help during the plague. And it was one of the ways that she was able to save her convent was that she built up such a reputation with the local population because she had helped them out during the plague and, and helped cure them. Hmm. And I wouldn't have necessarily have been quite so aware of, of that kind of activity, except for it really struck me as I was thinking about that. Oh yes, okay, there is, there is plague here. Um, why is this suddenly so important, what she is doing? So I do think that it's changed a lot of people's uh, perspective on keeping a, 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 a general sense of 
disasters and, and epidemic health around. Yep, absolutely. I, I have, um, it's given me a taste um, only a taste, I realize, of the extreme vulnerability of past peoples. And they were dropping like flies. And I've known that with my brain, of course, for decades. But to have the emotional sense of vulnerability is to experience just a tiny bit more of what they had to live with all the time. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. There's a request in the chat for the bibliographic info on the Zika article that you mentioned, Susan. Do you know where it appeared, the Charles, the article by Charles Zika? Yes, it's in a volume that has just come out that Uta and I co-edited. Okay. Uta, <laughs> are you there? Yeah, yes, I am. I can, I can put it in. I will do so. So, so, so Amy, contact Uta to find out more. Does that sound all right? <laughs> uh, Uta has received a copy of this co-edited book, and I have not yet received one. I do know the title, but nonetheless, there she is with this copy in her hand. I'm envious. It's the, it's the problem of the males and the fragility of packages over the long haul and so on. So my, I will get I will get a copy eventually. That's exciting. <laughs> There's a comment in from Janice Gibbs, and she says, this is more a comment than a question. Susan, Beth, and Victoria, your talks today have made me aware, maybe for the first time, of the ways in which Susan's perspective carried on by many scholars, including Beth and Victoria, has informed my teaching. I want my students to understand the humanity of early modern people, and you help me see it. Many thanks. That's very nice. Yes, thank you, Janice. So other questions or comments or either from Beth, Victoria, Susan to each other, anything you want to ask or fill in that you didn't get a chance to say yet? Well, you want me to express my gratitude some more. I don't want to just take the whole time saying how, how amazing it is to me that colleagues, and including Ut, the Uta's Fest Schrift, the Uta, the one, the only, 70-some uh, people have, have taken the trouble to submit something to a volume that was honoring me. And I can't tell you, when I say these pages are precious, they truly are. I do understand what it means to uh, give part of yourself, really. Mm -hmm. And it's very good also that the publishers, because placing festschrifts is hard with yes. publishers. Uh, they're not always so keen to do it. So it's, it's a very good testimony to everyone involved, I think, that these volumes uh, of festschrifts have come out and been so well, well done, really. They're beautiful books <clears throat> and well-received. I appreciate European publishers' greater willingness, not the British, but the continental a publisher's uh, greater willingness to do this mm -hmm. today. Absolutely. So from Peter Dykema, um, a question. Cutting edge trends in Reformation scholarship. What are some books accessible to undergrads and or early graduate students that present the most recent and most creative in Reformation studies? In other words, what's out there that would help students understand the trends in Reformation studies? Is there anything anyone can think of, the three of you, that would be a good 
place to send people to look at? I think the problem- I, I, I would suggest, I, I can't put my finger on it, but it's here in my office. Um, Yulinka Rublach's latest compendium of Reformation Europe, the second edition, not the first. She's, it's very different. They're very different. Mm -hmm. And it's brief and outstanding. I, the problem I found with, with trying to point students to something that talks about trends is that it becomes outdated very quickly <laughs> because the trends keep changing. So you can have a snapshot in time. Um, I've honestly found that some of the review articles that appear in 16th century studies or in other journals are actually a good place to start for at least the, the situation in a given field at a given time. The review articles are often a very good way to go. Uh, Beth, Victoria, anything you wanted to add? Yeah, I would say um, the one that I've been very successful in undergraduate classes with um, towards the end of the semester is to use Angelusti's reader uh, Reformation in Augsburg. Uh, and the students really, they get at all different actors and she, there, there's a lot of bibliography in there, but it's very accessible. The students really enjoy discovering it themselves. And then they go on to ask other questions beyond that. So if you're talking about an undergraduate audience, um, I also like um, Alexandra uh, Walsham's Skeleton in the Closet. Uh, I give that reading because that really uh, makes people think a lot. So I think there are uh, various articles and, and uh, uh, approaches that can start to get people thinking about this. I would just add to that too. I, I agree with that. Um, but throwing in a really difficult modern article that's that's hard once they've done all of that legwork, mm -hmm. which I'm sure you know this, Pete, but that can also be fun, right? A fun challenge. And one anecdote that Beth and I talked about was that when we, when we were editing this book, for part of the time I was living in Munster, and the LVL Museum is where the Rangelschrank that Helmut Puff talks about in his article is located. And Robert and I dragged our three preteen children to see the Rangelschrank and gave them a synopsis of Helmut's article, which is so theoretically complicated, right? And our kids were uninterested and young. But by the end of that visit, all three of them sort of understood <laughs> The, the notions of masculinity that Helmut was talking about and had some interest in this piece of um, history and which I thought was a lesson for me in not underestimating the undergrads and their ability to handle theoretically complex article secondary source articles so I would recommend that. <laughs> So we have a, a question or a, a comment from Preston Hill. He says, uh, this is for Susan, in your book, Reformation of Feeling, in the chapter, Reformed Churches, you extensively discuss what is still an existing lacuna in Reformation theology and history scholarship, namely the theme of Christ's descent into hell and the role of adverse emotional experiences in the religious experience of the early modern era. Do you think that the study of adverse emotions in these periods is a newer trend in Reformation scholarship? 
And why do you think that more has not been studied on the themes of feelings, emotions, especially bad feelings and emotions in religious life? Thoughts? Gosh, that's a sort of a complex question. Um, I would just say this. I think bad feelings were very much part of late medieval Catholicism. I mean, think of all the last judgment depictions. Mm -hmm. The, what is it, in Bone, uh, Roger, Roger van der Weyden, mm -hmm. uh, the, the last judgment. But there are dozens and may, probably hundreds of them um, showing the horrors of hell. Mm -hmm. And, and the paintings everywhere showing the agonies of martyrs. Mm -hmm. And uh, surely those were meant to elicit negative emotions. Yep. So I think at one point I was experimenting with the idea that um, Protestantism was more emotionally positive mm -hmm. because it wanted those paintings and other depictions removed from the sanctuaries, which has a toning down effect. And, and it also, uh, in the crucifixes that even Lutheranism retained and reformed churches did not retain, the tone was supposed to be on relaxation, Christ's body, Christ is dead, Christ has, redeemed you you know that's supposed to be comforting and positive so i'm not sure if i really answered that question it just seems to me that there's tremendous negative emotion in the late middle ages and indeed in ongoing catholicism i think i think that's that's right and as you said it's kind of a, a big question that opens up a lot of aspects we have a question from uta uh, lotoyman also which is another one that opens things up maybe. Uh, where do our three speakers see the cultural history of the reformations going next? Now there's a nice question for you. Where do we go next? What do you think? Victoria, I, Beth? Yeah, I wanna say that I have no idea, but, but to go back to, <laughs> to a, a question that you asked, somebody asked before about the pandemic, I wonder if some of the experiences people have had in the pandemic of isolation and um, not just the sickness part of it, but the social costs of lockdown and so forth and, and the nationalism that's come as a part of it and all of that won't wake us up to experiences that we weren't looking for in periods in the past. And so I think it could be that one of those strains of, of experience manifests itself in new avenues of research. That would be my guess, but I have no idea. Beth, any thoughts? Yeah, I would actually follow up with that, with um, the recent trends in uh, refugees and uh, studies on refugees, uh, and also uh, race and diversity mm -hmm. uh, as well as something that has uh, I've, I see more hints of that in people's writings. So in addition to the various turning we've been doing, uh, also a lot of people are very concerned about time. Uh, there's been a lot of, I, I hear people writing about dissertations about time uh, and sound <laughs> and, and century uh, experiences. I think that's a little bit older, but I think there is a kind of, of uh, work around uh, what's going on and th things people are thinking about. 
environmental history is another one. Yep, absolutely. Susan, was there anything you wanted to point? Well, I I suggested uh, some places, some some even individuals, but also topics that I thought were were to, were drawing us uh, further toward new new themes, and I guess I would just uh, repeat here hybridity, which I think is going to, uh, as people look at 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 concrete settings more, I think they're going to find where two faiths or three faiths are close together, that there is an interchange between them. And I think that Beth's work on the convents has shown one setting within which this really does uh, occur. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And then we have a question from Amy Burnett. She says, a possible question, I'd appreciate comments from all three about how we as teachers and researchers reconcile the pressure to generalize in teaching global world history and the importance of in-depth knowledge of a particular time and place. That's an interesting one. So the, the, the sort of tensions between generalizing teaching global world history and the importance of in-depth knowledge of a particular time and place. That's a really tough one, because there is a, a huge movement towards big history right now, which is really globalizing things and looking very broadly. Um, but it, it loses the individuals, it loses the circumstances of the kind of things that we're talking about. And it strikes me that you can't have one without the other. And that I think at some point the continued generalization of history will make it less and less um, viable unless we have uh, localized studies uh, mm -hmm. to rather have a dialogue between that big picture and the, the very intimate picture in a location. This, this is a, a topic really that has come up and continues to come up within world history, the debate about whether you really can be an expert uh, in, in four or five different parts of the world uh, on whatever subject, or whether you need to be truly an expert in one or at the most two. And there is no satisfactory answer, it seems to me. Um, and basically, for teaching purposes, the methodology of presenting a larger setting still requires that the teacher have some expertise in one or two to make it to make it entirely credible. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a tension there, and it's hard to say. I think in teaching, we present case studies that open up larger human questions, but that the student, the undergraduate student needs those small mm -hmm. texts or settings or events, crises, in order to set free a discussion about larger issues, larger human issues. You know, like a frame of reference almost. Yes. Victoria, was there any thoughts you had on this? I don't have much to add to that other than it makes me think about the earlier conversation that Susan had about um, incorporating anthropological theory into your history, Susan, and how it didn't please the anthropologists, <laughs> but it was helpful to the study of history. And I think there's some of that in this discussion too, right? That, that 
we can borrow from other places and a bigger picture in order to inform the small micro studies that we do and vice versa. I think it's just a conversation between all of those different things and nobody will ever have the corner on the market of all of it, but it, it all helps each other, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have two more questions that have come in. Karen Spearling says, Susan, I loved hearing your narrative of how your own thinking changed over the course of your own career. My question is about how the way the story of the Reformation is told has or has not changed since then. Could you give us an example of one or two ways that Reformation history was taught at the start of your career that no longer seems tenable to you? Um, yes, I think the easiest thing is the almost adoration, not quite, because that would be crossing the line, but deep admiration of the reformers mm -hmm. and a sense of their being unrivaled, uh, being almost uh, chosen by God. And in fact, there are quarters within which it, that is still felt. But I think that we may feel that these are in some sense truly exceptional people who have affected world history and yet today we see the anti-semitism we see the the sententiousness of i won't name any names you know we see these um mostly men and more women now women have been added there's a change but even with these uh leading men we see that they are indeed human. There's been a greater emphasis on their simultaneous humanity. Mm -hmm. Yep, I think that's very true. And this whole question about how we view the reformers themselves, I found that sort of endlessly fascinating uh, within faith communities at the time, afterwards, it's, it's just fascinating. Um, yeah. A question from Esther Chung Kim. In light of recent anti-Asian violence, I've been invited to speak to Asian American Christian groups who identify with Reformation traditions. Are there ways to understand the Reformation beyond the European culture? How can Reformation scholarship on a hybrid identity help inform present day divisions? Well, one of the things that I've found in uh, working on our shared churches project is uh, this is again getting back to sociologists and anthropologists and others. Uh, there is a scholar, uh, there's a series of scholars who've worked on this. Um, and Robert Walker is one of them. I can, I can send you the names of some of them. But in looking at where the touch points of, of, of ability to accommodate are and the ability of or the ability to perpetrate violence in these kind of circumstances and so to understand that dynamic and um you know depending on the various scholars they either have a rather pessimistic view that it's impossible to avoid um when you have uh this hybrid circumstance of any sort of violence and others who think that it can be resolved uh, in various ways with an awareness. And I think talking about that within the Reformation context is really interesting because it allows us to confront what is a very serious series of issues for us. 
without having to have that specific dialogue, but to discuss the issues as it's happening in the 16th century to gain an awareness of how these dynamics can work. Mm -hmm. I think I would add that uh, some of the work on religious refugees, yeah. um, particularly on sort of the, the question of not just people who left because of persecution, but also how were they received in their new communities? A lot of that is very helpful in terms of starting to think about issues that are still very current today, but that had a very strong reformation focus. In other words, we start thinking about connections between, okay, what happens say in Geneva when all these French exiles arrive and how come there's all this anti-French sentiment? You know, where, yes. where's that coming from, right? So that helps us try and think about some of the problems that are happening today. It's not like it's the same thing, but you've got bridges of comparison and communication that you can start thinking about the 16th century from that perspective as well. I also think it's interesting that in the 16th century, you suddenly have people who've been living together for seemingly in peace for, for centuries, suddenly deciding because of something that's different about somebody, uh, in, in the case of the Reformation, a choice of, to practice their, their, their religion differently. And they're suddenly foreign and they're suddenly uh, enemies and heretics. It's an interesting um, psychological and, and sociological shift that must happen at that particular moment where the people that you've been intermarrying with, where you've been socializing, you've been in a church together all this time, suddenly are viewed of as foreign. Mm -hmm. And so that might be some a way to get at that. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. We have a question from Ekaterina Lomperis. She says, I would appreciate hearing your thoughts on the recent rise of interest in the use of the senses in the reformations. What do you see as currently most important discoveries or future directions when it comes to the use of senses in the Reformation? Well, I think that uh, this opens up a whole new, the idea that <clears throat> Protestantism did not do away with trying to shape the sensual experiences of the worshiper, but transformed the use of the senses is, is, a, is a, quite a profound insight. And it's a very challenging one. I think there's a great deal more uh, that it, uh, these general theories have been put forward now uh, by Philip Hahn and Jacob Baum and others. And I think that there's a lot of exploration that remains to be done there in, in understanding exactly what the dynamic in the, in the sanctuary is. How is the worshiper approached and how is that person shaped how is that shaping attempted? Mm -hmm. I think there's a great deal more to be done there. 
so I don't think that it's that we've done more than just launch a direction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think if you look at the work of Andrew Spicer, for instance, yes, I think Andrew's here. He is. Hello, Andrew. <laughs> so, you know, we have we have scholars who are interested in sort of the way in which church architecture sort of yes. Sort of how we see and how we we perceive ourselves as communities i think that's another direction that's really quite quite fascinating it is all right any other comments i think we're getting towards the end i don't know if i've covered every single question that's come in because there were so many of them but that's great um so before i thank everyone just a couple of announcements um first of all we have another session planned for the first of june at 1 p.m. again, so our European colleagues can join us. Um, Philip Benedict and Michael Bruning are going to be coming together for a conversation on new directions in the study of the French-speaking Reformation. So uh, Philip Benedict has published a book uh, called Seasons of Conspiracy on the reign of Francis II and reformed actions during his reign. That was published in 2020. And then Michael Bruning's book is just out and it has a wonderful title. Its title starts Refusing to Kiss the Slipper. And it's oh. sort of a critique, a contemporary's a critique on Calvin from other trends, other, other sort of lines within uh, reformed Protestantism in the French speaking areas around Geneva. So those two men will come and we will have a wonderful discussion on probably new light shed on Calvin, new light shed on the French Reformation. That's going to be on the 1st of June at 1 p.m. and we'll send everyone uh, messages about that. And then the only other announcement I have is for the colleagues who may not yet have heard, uh, Bernard Roussel, our colleague in France, passed away on the 31st of March. Uh, he is the, one of the foremost people in French Reformation studies. So those of us who are in the field of French Reformation studies, if you haven't already heard, uh, the Meter Center will put up uh, an appreciation for him on its Facebook page, I think within the, the coming week. But and now it's simply my great privilege to say thank you so much to Susan and to Beth and to Victoria. Um, this has been great. Thank you so much. It's been a wonderful opportunity to get together and to talk about these important topics. And we've covered the ground really quite remarkably in terms of the topics we've addressed. So thanks to all three of you for being part of this. And may I also echo what you said? It is my great privilege to say thank you. We are delighted. Thanks again, everyone. Have a wonderful day and we will catch you all soon. Thank you.